The refugees fleeing war in Syria are in the news nearly every day, but there's more going on than you can see on TV. Ask the natives, ask the people how they see that. You will be surprised. What you hear there where things happen are totally different from what you get in your news. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, friends from Greece, Turkey, and Sweden share their perspectives on how to respond to the multitudes arriving in their countries. They've walked through deserts, they've come on boats. This is the people that you hear about in the news. This is the reality. But has it become too big a problem to help? I think we have enough bread to split. Plus, Fred Plotkin tells us what he learned as a speaker at the Milan Expo, a modern version of a World's Fair dedicated to long-term solutions to feeding the planet. And it's only natural that Italy hosted the event. Italy is the country more than any other that innately has understood biodiversity. Stay with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. News reports of refugees trying to resettle in Europe are raising all sorts of issues. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll learn what friends from Turkey, Greece, and Sweden have to tell us about the situation in their home countries. Many European countries are overwhelmed by the numbers of people fleeing war and famine. And at the same time, global issues are presenting challenges to the entire planet. Milan, Italy hosted an international expo last year to explore lasting solutions in agriculture and innovative ways to reverse threats to the environment. Fred Plotkin is a frequent guest here, and he's known for his comprehensive guide called Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. Fred was invited to address the expo, and he joins us now for an update on how multinational delegations are tackling these important issues. Fred, welcome. Great to be with you. Do I understand you were the first American to address the expo? I was indeed. On the first day, which was May 1st of 2015, I did two talks, one in English, one in Italian. And what was your topic? In the one in English, I wanted people to understand the meaning of Milan as a center of food culture, of commerce, of sustainability perhaps, of abundant resources, but also knowing how to marshal them properly. For the Italian talk, I explained to the Italians the meaning of Christopher Columbus as a phenomenon in world food culture because he traveled everywhere and brought exchanging products Hmm. from the so-called old world to the so-called new world and changed more than anyone else in history how we eat and how we grow food. For example, coffee being the old world but brought to the new, chocolate being the new world and brought to the old. Huh. So what are some more examples of what we got from the New World in, from explorers like Columbus, or what Europe got from that? Well, corn. Imagine polenta without corn. Mm. Tomatoes. Imagine Italian food without mm. tomatoes. Potatoes. Imagine Ireland and Belgium without potatoes. All kinds of things. It's called the Colombian Exchange. That is fascinating. Bananas went from the old world to the new. Huh. Rice is another product. Wheat went from the old world to the new. Imagine Texas and Kansas without wheat. Chocolate? Chocolate from Mex- vanilla mm-hmm. from Mexico to the old world. Amazing. Now the, Endless stuff. The, the topic of the expo was sustainability. Specifically what? The theme was feeding the planet energy for life on the notion that right now the population of the world is about 7.2 billion, and by 2050 it will be 9 billion. The planet will not get any bigger there will not suddenly be more water. So how do we survive sustainably and equitably in a world where right now one billion people go hungry? Actually, the new figure is 800 million. Mm. And where one billion people eat too much, Mm. mostly Americans and certain other societies. And how do we make it more equitable? And how do we keep the world safe for our children, grandchildren, and so on? That's what this is about. It's a big, ambitious project for a World's Fair where typically they talk about technology. When you came away from it, did you feel like it was inspiring people with a message of hope, or is it just overwhelming, and and how do we change this? I think that certain countries, there were 150-plus countries represented, 
did a really good job of discussing it, and other countries sort of blew it. France, for example, blew it. Huh. They just simply had an exhibition about wheat and baking. Okay. The Netherlands blew it. It was simply about food stalls and so on. But other countries, for example, Austria, did a fantastic job. Their exhibition was about air. And you can't see air, we hope. And therefore, they made it very clear to you that you can live for 30 days without food, five days without water, but you can't last very long without air. So they created a sort of microclimate of forest with many different plants in there that take in toxins and give out oxygen. And there was a simple lit sign in electric letters that said breathe in English with a B and the R at the front and an H and E at the back. And then you walked past the BRHE and you got to eat. And you discovered how the forest and its air and its plants can provide not only sustainable food, but delicious food. So all the foods that the Austrians served were not your typical Viennese specialties, Wiener schnitzel and so on. It was forest food because forests are part of Austria. The most important message that I took out of the whole fair was the concept of biodiversity. By that we mean that if you have many types of potatoes or many types of bananas, the likelihood that they will survive is greater than if you have one or two varieties. So there are endless examples around the world. The famous Irish potato famine was a result of the fact that there was really just one or two varieties of potato in Ireland. So when they became infected, all of Ireland starved. Mm. Millions of people left Ireland to the Americas, and it changed American history, it changed Irish history, all because of a potato. Right now we have a crisis in the world regarding bananas, that they've cut out most of the varieties so that the few that are left in places like Australia and Central America, mm. we're having a big die-off mm. of bananas. We're having a die-off of oranges in Florida and grapefruits as well. Italy is the country more than any other that innately has understood biodiversity. So they'll have endless types of beans and plants and flowers and berries. So if one gets sick, you don't die. And Brazil is second for biodiversity, but that's just because of the size of the country. But industrialization there is killing off certain things. But Italy, hmm. bless it, remains the model of how we survive. And that's why the Italians chose this as a theme. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Plotkin. Fred is the author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. And Fred was the first American ever to be invited to address the Milan Expo. It's interesting when you think of a, of a World's Fair in the 21st century, because I think they started back in the 19th century. And you wonder, does it still work? I've heard people think that, you know, they're a thing of the past. But here it sounds like it was a very constructive sharing of ideas and sort of almost a nation-by-nation nation competition to say, how can we embrace these ideas and make sure that we have a sustainable future? Well, to be blunt about it, certain nations at the fair use the World's Fair as a sort of promotional thing for their country. Right. And other nations took the theme very seriously. I was very proud to be an American there mm -hmm. because you would expect that the American pavilion would be ostentatious and mm -hmm. huge. Mm -hmm. That was the Russian pavilion. Mm -hmm. The American pavilion was rather slim and very modest in size, and we put our money in people. Mm -hmm. So the exhibition was not much to look at, mm -hmm. but they brought 60 young Americans, trained them in Italian, mm -hmm. so they could speak about their experiences as, say, a dairy farmer in Wisconsin, a pepper grower in Arizona or New Mexico, an apple grower in upstate New York. They were the ones who transmitted their knowledge. And by being able to speak in Italian to people, mm. they represented us so much better than any exhibition or animation or electronics would have done. Very proud to be an what American. What an unethnocentric way to approach a World Fair is to have your staff speak the local language. I love that. You work a lot, as I do, to inspire people to travel. We just think it's a, a very constructive and beautiful way to you know, celebrate life. But we're dealing with uh, global warming and climate change and, and the carbon that we generate when we travel. What are your thoughts on the nobility of traveling when we're threatened with this serious challenge? Is there a way we can travel in a carbon-neutral way? Um, yes, there is. It's a big question with a big answer. So I traveled the world using public transport, and I talk to people, I meet people. People say, 
how do you know everything you know? It's because I talk to people. Mm. I don't sit enclosed in my own car driving. Mm. Another way to do that is to not use resources. I was in a hotel recently in Washington, D.C., a very fancy hotel in a way, and it was a suite, and every light was on in the room when I got there. Mm -hmm. The televisions were on, the air conditioner was on, and mm -hmm. it was October, mm -hmm. so I didn't need the air conditioner. We need to train our companies to do that. Mm -hmm. Another thing is the famous, if you want to reuse your sheets or your towels, do that. Mm -hmm. The problem is most hotels offer that, but the maids change the sheets and the towels anyway. It's one of my it's pet peeves. It's unfortunate, but it's, it's true. It's one of my pet peeves. I can use the same towel for many days, but they want to love you by changing your towels every day. It makes no sense to me. Another key thing is having building hotels and public structures that have windows that open because we've become so used to air conditioning mm -hmm. that we think that that's how buildings should be. Mm -hmm. Fresh air is really good. And if we minimize the amount of traffic in cities, I live in New York, we have mm -hmm. too much traffic, we need streetcars, we need public transport. Mm -hmm. When I lived in Bologna in Italy, public transportation was free and cars were banned from the city center mm. so that everyone could get about on public transport. And I dried my laundry, not in a dryer, mm. but hanging on a clothesline. I know Germans are proud that they've got skyscrapers where the windows open and they like to open the window when they need some air. You know, I think undeniably we contribute to the carbon problem when we fly, but we can become global citizens and we can be inspired by other countries and come home and help our country be a little more in tune with the uh, ethics of sustainability. And uh, maybe that's a little bit of an excuse to uh, help us travel in what we consider when all the dust settles is a carbon-neutral way. Well, I'll get to that in a moment, but it occurred to me that it's really important that we remember not to drink bottled water that's imported from other countries mm -hmm. for the simple reason that if a bottle comes to New York from France or from Fiji, it's not better, and we've expended so much energy to transport that bottle mm -hmm. that then gets thrown out. What we need to do is lobby our government people to improve our water quality, to protect our reservoirs, so that we can drink potable tap water because there's no reason we should ever drink bottled water. Yeah, these are some of the obvious sort of low-hanging fruits of creating a more sustainable society. But I think we Americans, sorry to interrupt, you asked me what we can learn and what we can do. If you go to European countries where the quality of living is very high, they don't have all their lights on, they don't run water, they live very aware of the fact that things are limited in resources, mm -hmm. and they treat it that way. I find that one of the inspiring things about traveling through Europe. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Fred Plotkin. Fred's book is Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. And uh, Fred uh, Cavaliere, a knight in Italy, for his contribution to uh, Americans appreciating Italy and, and uh, respecting all the good things in Italian culture. Fred, thanks for sharing with us your lessons from the Milan Expo of last year. Thank you, Rick. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, we consider how to respond to the refugee crisis in Turkey, Greece, and Sweden. We're at 877-333-7425. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. The images in the news are heartbreaking. That photo of the Syrian child who drowned in the Aegean near Bodrum, Turkey, showed the world what it's like for millions of people to exchange one uncertain future for another. The chaos and suffering in Syria, as well as in Afghanistan and even the Horn of Africa, can be hard for us to imagine. And it's difficult on the receiving end of all these refugees as well. The throngs that make it as far as the Greek islands are straining the ability of the economically challenged government of Greece to manage. How does this refugee crisis affect the people who live in or even visit the countries that are on the routes these evacuees are taking? For a personal perspective behind the headlines, we're joined by Lali Sermon-Iran from Turkey, Anastasia Gaitanu from Greece, and Hokan Frandin from Sweden, where many of the refugees hope to find asylum. Lali, Anastasia, Hokan, thanks for joining us. Thank you Thank for inviting. Thank First of all, in the United States, we use the word crisis as we talk about the refugees. And I wonder how the refugee situation is described and termed in Europe. 
Anastasia, in Greece, how, how do you, in general, just describe the refugee situation? Well, we definitely do use the word crisis. For us, it is, mm-hmm. because my country has been enormously affected by it since we are the first European country that receives vast numbers of refugees and economic migrants. We had just in one year in 2015 till the mid of December more than 816,000, like 817,000 just in one year. And of course, we should not forget that we are a country in recession. You're in a very difficult recession, almost very. bankruptcy, and it's a European problem, and Greece is accepting the brunt of this, and this is an interesting thing to discuss, is whose financial responsibility is this problem, even though they all come to, uh, most of the refugees are coming through Greece. Lali, in Turkey, how is the refugee situation described and, and thought of? With mixed feelings, I must say, because the cities just north of the Syrian border get the biggest influx of people and after they go through these cities, then they disperse into the country. So you don't notice them as intensely. But where they are found very intensely, economic situation is difficult and cities are having difficulty in absorbing not only hundreds of thousands, but millions coming in. So it's a problem, obviously a problem, but on the other hand, there's a humanitarian approach to it too. Well, I was an immigrant once upon a time. Many people in my country were immigrants, came from somewhere else, and I suppose Americans can sympathize with this easily. They were immigrants once upon a time. So I think we have enough bread to split. So yes, economically, it's being a burden. But from the other side, where do people go to? So there's that humanitarian issue. And when people, especially who have a an immigrant heritage, and most exactly. people do, I think, or exactly. a lot of people do. Exactly. It's just the honest way to approach that. Now, exactly. Anastasia said 800,000 uh, Syrian refugees have come to Greece. Did nearly all of them go overland through Turkey to get to Greece? Great majority of them. And at the moment, currently within Turkey, there are 2.8 millions. And of course, a number much beyond that went through Turkey. Now, when we say the refugee crisis, are we talking about Syrians almost exclusively? I'm talking about Syrian refugees. Mainly, but not only. Okay. Hokan Franden from Sweden. What is the Swedish take on the refugee? Because you are at the far end of Europe. Perhaps uh, refugees are thinking we're going to go through Greece, but they're thinking of getting to Germany or Scandinavia. They are, and I agree with Anastasia and Lali on what they say. One distinction I want to make, it is a crisis, but... In Sweden, we see it really as a crisis for those people, not for us. It's not our crisis, it's their crisis. In other words... That's an important distinction. The hardship is being borne by the refugees, not the countries that are hosting the refugees? Correct. Correct. To an extent, I agree with Håkan, because uh, it's their crisis. I'm afraid I must say that in Istanbul, especially, we live parallel lives. Yeah, They are in Istanbul. Their lives don't touch us. Our lives don't touch them. We don't intersect. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Syrian refugee crisis. We're getting a perspective from Greece, from Turkey, and from Sweden. All of you are tour guides, and you earn your living taking many Americans around your countries through the last year, through all of this refugee business, from a practical point of view, not from a a sympathy point of view or, or, or anything, but just from a practical point of view. How has the refugee crisis impacted your work as a tour guide and impacted the experience of the Americans you show around, Lali in Turkey? It hasn't impacted. Nothing at all? Nothing at all. Anastasia in Greece? Not at all, because you don't see them. They don't go to touristic places. They just want to go through Greece somewhere else. Right. And they, they look at Greece as a transit country trying to get out. Even so, you would be aware that this was going on, but you would be in your hotel in yes. Mykonos catching your ferry almost like normal? Almost like normal. Lesbos would be the that, ex- example. On that particular island, you can't ignore it. That's the one it's, place it's where massive. it's a big deal. But the rest of Greece, rest if you're enjoying Greece, Athens nothing. or Mykonos or the Peloponnese Peninsula, it's something you read in the newspaper. Because these people are only there where there is access from Turkey. Okay. And then from that point into Athens and from there on a bus on a train to the border. And it's that's a parallel it. world from a tourism point of view. Hakon, in, uh, I, I make a point if it is possible to pass the central station in Stockholm where you see outside a lot of 
people, Swedish people going to help in giving food yeah. and stuff, I make it a point to pause there and, you know, look on your right hand side. Those are refugees. These people have come, most many of them, on. they've walked through deserts, they've come on boats. This is the people that you hear about in the news. This is the reality. I was just in Hamburg, and it was the same way. I was in a park in Hamburg, just to sightseeing, and next to it was a welcoming uh, center for mm. refugees, yeah. and it was a soup kitchen and a place where they were getting together clothing yeah. and figuring out their needs. That's right, and they come to the airport in Stockholm, or they come to the central station in Stockholm, and then there are buses that are filled, and they are they go to different parts right. of Sweden where they are received and taken now, care of. When we say received, are they put into temporary camps, like people who are on the border of Afghanistan during some kind of a, a crisis, or are they being processed in a way that ultimately, hopefully, they will be assimilated into into that economy and that society? The lost. The lost. So that's the goal, is mm. to assimilate these refugees. The lost, yes. The thing is that the last four months of 2015, there were so many coming yeah. that we all of a sudden, it was totally full. We, we receive, usually, a normal year, we receive 80,000, right. which we need. An you need. Now, that's yeah. an interesting point. In Sweden, you're a, you're a relatively small, what do you have, 10 or 12 million 10 people? Million, 10 million, 10 million. And uh, you receive 80,000 refugees. And a year. How do you need these refugees? We do not have a natural birth growth in Sweden. One woman has an average of 1.8 children. Uh-huh. That means that in one generation, two Swedes become 1.8 Swedes. In two generations, two Swedes become 1.6 Swedes. In three generations, two Swedes become 1.4 Swedes. We are disappearing. The Swede is on the United Nations extinction list. <laughs> we are I never thought of it that yeah, way. An endangered species. We, we are not. Yeah, we are an endangered well, Let's take good species. care of Hong Kong. We're not, <laughs> we're not on that list. But, 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 no, but I'm not kidding. Yeah, this, no, is, this, this is really important. But Europe in general is uh, a geriatric continent uh, that yeah. is going down in population. Correct. And we, we have a, an aging population. We have like more people dying than being born and retiring than being born. And we are going to have to finance the future pension funds. And in the name of holy growth, which you hear about nowadays, we need a growing population. Therefore, we have had a constant growing population of about 100,000 people a year, thanks to immigration. Also, we cannot survive without immigration. You have very generous entitlements for retired people and and so on, and you have to have people working to keep these entitlements vibrant. Correct. And I think that's not unique to Sweden. All over the, uh, at least the wealthy part of Europe, Hokan, in 2015, roughly how many Syrian refugees has Sweden taken? 160,000. 160,000. And it is the hope and expectation that these people will become Swedish citizens, assimilated into the economy, respecting the Swedish way of life. It is. And embracing what Sweden is all about. Yes, it is. That's sort of the very positive uh, attitude. Mm. Is the thinking that these refugees will be given sort of a cultural boot camp so they can learn the language and understand what it's like to be Swedish? Or can they, can they just kind of camp out there and still be Syrians on Swedish soil? They will be Syrians that become Swedish citizens living in Sweden. And hopefully they will interact with society but I'm not going to be able to force anybody to become Swedish right. because people have the right to be what they are. You know, I'm thinking in a big sense because a lot of Americans look at the news and they think, oh, Europe is going to become Muslim and it's going to become the different kind of place than we ever knew. But I keep thinking Europe is, what, 400 million people and we're talking 1 million refugees here. That's the right. That's what we, we're we have to remember. This is not unprecedented. No, we're talking that figure. Societies can absorb these people. And as a matter of fact, it's a refreshing opportunity for the workforce to become youthful and and revitalized. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're we're talking about the refugee crisis from a European perspective. We're joined by Hokan Franden from Sweden, Lali Sermon Aran from Turkey, and Anastasia Gaitanu from Greece. Now, Lali, you've traveled in Syria quite yes. a bit. You've yes. led tours around Syria. Yes, I did. You were there before the civil war. What are your yes. memories of, of Syria before this tragic civil war that's torn that little country apart? I can share my feelings with you. What I felt when I was in Syria, warmth, hospitality, safety, and comfort. While you were in Syria? While I was in Syria, these were the feelings I had. The uh, economic level, was it about the same as Turkey, would you say? It was lower than Turkey, uh-huh. but still people had decent living. Stability. Stability. 
Living enough under food. a under a strong arm government. Or, yes. You know. Enough food, enough safety, and hope for future. Hmm. And Syria that I have known and I had traveled into is gone now. How so? There is no such thing. People doesn't have homes. Bazaars don't exist. Roads don't exist. Infrastructure is completely gone. And it's, as Hakan said, it's a crisis for the people who are living in it. So this is millions of people that millions have of no people. homeland, basically. Exactly, exactly. Wow. Now, when you were there, what was your take on the position of Muslim women in Syria compared to a Muslim woman in Turkey? Quite liberal. Mm-hmm. Women could easily and can still, uh, Syrian women, in the society, socialize with the men. They could be out in the tea houses, mingling with the men, enjoying the water pipe with the men, mm-hmm. being outdoors. And it's an outdoor society. They mm-hmm. like being outdoors. And, and you would see as many women as the men. So relative to Saudi Arabia or Iran, the women very, would be... Very, very different. Very, yes. uh, very yes. Western and, and relatively yes. free. Yes. Anastasia, when we think of the refugee crisis from a Greek perspective... My my curiosity would be, how can Greece take this burden? Greece is a struggling economy. Greece barely has enough money to pay its own workers. And uh, Hakan is talking about all of these young workers coming in and revitalizing the economy. It sounds like from Lolly's point of view, the refugees are just going through Turkey to try to get to Europe, and Greece is the doorstep of Europe. Can Greece absorb these workers? Is this a good thing for Greece, or is it a burden and just a, an expense and, and Greece needs help from Europe? Well, if we can absorb these workers, no, we can't. And we can't stop Greeks from immigrating to Europe. I mean, we definitely do not need more working hands. We do not have the jobs for these hands. Main problem in Greece is that we have huge numbers of not just refugees, but also these economic migrants arriving in I would like to make that distinction because that causes a bigger problem since refugees are entitled to claim an asylum and they are accepted in other countries in Europe while economic migrants are not because they're not fleeing from a war like the Syrians, for example, or a violation of their human rights, but they're just trying to find a place where they can have a better life while they could have a life in their country as well, like like in Morocco, for example. So they cannot cross the border, mm-hmm. and we're stuck with them. And there are 40%, more or less, of those coming and over from Turkey. So that's one problem, because they need to be housed, they need to be fed, they need medication, they need clothes. And many times, because that is not enough what we can offer, there are rivalries between them. Sometimes there is struggle. Our government was really trying to do the best, but the funds were not that many. We got funds from Europe now, although I have to say that what we get from Europe is mainly to help the registration of those Mm -hmm. people and getting their fingerprints and making a database. So Greece, it sounds like, is bearing the negative side of the immigration crisis, and the big challenge for Europe is to get these immigrants into powerful economies where they're welcomed and then can assimilate and become part of the economic engine. As you said, Greece just does not have the economy to absorb these people now, but Sweden and Germany, whose populations are going down, need the workers. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And David's calling from Baltimore. David, thanks for your call. Thank you. My family, my wife and son, daughter-in-law, and two grandchildren are looking forward to a great trip through um, the Balkans, uh, beginning in Slovenia and going down through Croatia and up through Montenegro and then to Bosnia-Herzegovina. My question relates to whether or not we should have any sort of safety concerns or precautions we should take or anything along that line. We will be driving, we will be crossing at least four borders, maybe one of them a couple of times. So any advice that you might give us? You know, we've had a, a lot of, uh, of our listeners concerned about this, and it's a very legitimate and reasonable concern, and we've got guides here from Turkey, Greece, and Sweden. I'd like each of you just to comment on if an American was planning on crossing borders and traveling around Europe, given the immigrant crisis that's happening now and assuming it's going to be ongoing, how does this complicate their trip? First of all, uh, Lolly in Turkey. I can answer the question from a Turkish perspective. I cannot talk about the other countries, but uh-huh. immigrants do not cause 
a trouble into the travelers because they're completely in different places to start with. The refugee camps are north of the Syrian border, which are very, very hundreds of miles away from the main tourist, tourist centers of the country. And there might be some trouble crossing between the Turkish and Bulgarian border because of the crowds, but other than that, I cannot think of a reason. But trouble would be the inconvenience of a delay, not a safety issue. Exactly. Now, that's very exactly. important for our travelers to recognize that when, you know, David, when people are thinking of uh, the, the, the impact of the refugee crisis on us, the worst scenario I can think of is simply an inconvenience because of a delay because there's people who are desperate and not on vacation that are trying to get mm-hmm. across a border. Anastasia, what impact would would an American traveler or any international tourist have in, in Greece because of the refugee situation? Well, I can only agree with Lale. Mm-hmm. And it's only borders that are on the route to the northern countries. Right. In economic crisis in general, I've found that when I'm in places that are in crisis, like I've been in Greece a lot lately, a lot in Spain and so on, there's parallel worlds. And uh, a tourist on Mykonos or a tourist in Naphtalion is not going to be very aware of the economic crisis. If you're you know, in a building project in a town that nobody, no tourist goes to, you'll notice that the building projects are on hold. But from a tourist point of view, you're just a blessing for the economy, and everybody's bending over backwards to make sure you have a good trip. Hakan, from a traveler's point of view in Scandinavia, how does the refugee crisis impact uh, somebody planning a trip? Uh, in no way would that affect you. And like Lala said, you will not come to any camps. I would recommend you to, if you get any possibility, to come to a refugee camp to go there and see reality. And there's no danger in that at all. You might meet some interesting people. Absolutely. <laughs> Sounds right. What a concept. Yeah. Thank you, David, for your call. Thank you very much. You bet. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We'll continue in just a minute with Hukan, Anastasia, and Lali and their perspectives on the refugee situation in Europe and Turkey. Be sure to join us on Travel with Rick Steves in two weeks when we address this topic with guests from Italy, France, and Germany. If you happen to miss that broadcast, we'll have it archived as a podcast. Look for program number 436 in the radio section at ricksteves.com. It should be available to listen to by March 5th. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting perspectives on the refugee situation in Europe that you might not find in the latest news reports. Our guests live in some of the countries that are on the evacuation route the refugees are taking from Syria and from other conflict zones in the Middle East and Africa. Lali Sermon Iran lives in Istanbul. Anastasia Gaitanu is from Thessaloniki in Greece. And Hokan Franden lives in Stockholm, Sweden, where many of the refugees who make it to Turkey and then Greece are hoping to ultimately resettle. Jake's calling in from Ottawa in Canada. Jake, are, are you uh, considering traveling uh, through the refugee crisis? Well, first of all, I just want to tell you a little bit about Canada. We're about 35 million here, and we're taking in 25,000 Syrian refugees over the next few months. So we're doing our bit, albeit a little, I guess, compared to other countries, like your guest countries there. Mm-hmm. But my individual concern is this. We do enjoy visiting Europe, and we've done so, my wife and I, especially as retirees, over the last several years, and would like to continue to do that. Our thinking is, with the refugee crisis the way it is right now, there's almost a feeling of this is an awkward thing to do right now, where we go over there and start touring around while people are losing their lives and certainly fleeing for their lives almost right around us. And that feeling is perhaps even awkward is not the right word. It's almost disrespectful to be over there touring around and having a very good time. Well, again, people are in crisis. And I'm just wondering what your guess thought of what we could do to, I guess, deal with that feeling. Do we just not go? Or do we go and, as one of your guests suggested, actually go see the camps? Mm-hmm. Then again, I'd feel kind of royalty or something visiting peasants. It wouldn't be a nice feeling to do so. So that's the feeling. It's this one of maybe almost disrespect to be touring while people are 
literally fleeing for their lives around. You know, Jake, I'm really interested also to hear what our guests have to say about that. Hakon, from a Swedish point of view. Go to Europe. You First of all, you will not see anything of this. You see this on the news, and the news just show you what they select to show you. Uh, go. That's a way to help people. You bring your Canadian dollars to us, and we can use a little part of it because we'll make sure we take get a part of it to our governments and they can use it to help refugees. So if you go to Europe, you help refugees. Lolly, from a Turkey point of view, um, Jake is awkward about traveling, like many Americans and Canadians would be when there's this uh, desperation around them. Uh, what did you take from a Turkish tour guide's point of view? I would also suggest you to travel, especially to Turkey. Turkey has self-financed the refugees on its own so far. And what we spent is over $8 billion. $8 billion would be? $8 billion, yes. Only very recently, Europe decided to support with it, and they decided to release a fund for about $3 billion. Mm -hmm. So this still makes $5 billion out of the pockets of the Turkish people, and tourism is a major industry in Turkey. If I can make a living, I'll be helping. If I cannot make a living, I will not be able to help. Anastasia, from a Greek point of view. There are many ways one could help, and traveling to a country in crisis is definitely one. As Lala said, tourism is a major industry, is a very high percentage of the GDP of all these countries. But what I would also like to add is just traveling and having a good time is one thing, but don't close your ears and your eyes. Mm. Ask and mingle with people. Ask the locals, how is it? Do not go to the camps necessarily. Do not go to the shores where you see all those rubber boats and left aside and piled up. You don't have to do that. But ask the natives, ask the people how they see that, how it's their perspective. And you will be surprised many times that what you hear there where things happen are totally different from what you get in your news. You do gain an appreciation of how the news can manipulate our perceptions and build our fears and... It's so valuable, I believe, to just go there and talk to people, as, as Anastasia was just saying. I've talked to a lot of Americans that feel very uncomfortable, like it's insensitive to travel to Greece if there's refugees nearby, as if that's insensitive. Uh, but what the implication is they can go to Hawaii or Cancun and be less insensitive because they're not near the refugees. Uh, I think if you care about the refugees, whether you're vacationing in California or vacationing on a Greek island, uh, there's really no difference. And the key is to care about the refugees. And I think it's a beautiful thing, as Hakon said, go, go and, and talk to the people. You don't need to talk to refugees, but you're certainly welcome to talk to the refugees. And if you have a, a sense of of um, guilt or if it's inappropriate to be spending that money when there's that kind of, of desperation, there's always that kind of desperation on this planet. And, and I just think it really makes sense to travel with a with a stewardship kind of uh, approach where I'm going to invest this money and I'm going to learn about the world and I'm going to gain empathy for these people and I'm going to have a confidence that I can see through misleading media or misperceptions and I can come home and I can be a citizen with a broader perspective and a better heart for this struggle. Uh, Jake, does that make any sense? It does, and you've really given me an informed encouragement to go and do exactly what you're recommending. And I didn't have that before, so this has been very great for me. Oh, good. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, I, I really am inspired myself by Anastasia and Lolly and Hakon reminding us to travel, not trying to avoid the reality, but, but travel and, and connect with the reality. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for putting me on and letting me have the chance to listen to all this. It's been wonderful. You bet. Happy travels. Okay, bye. You know, I always say happy travels, but I also like to think thoughtful travels. Uh, thoughtful travel. Thomas Jefferson said, travel makes a person wiser if less happy. Mm. Because you expose yourself to things that uh, maybe make your life a little more awkward or complicated, but that's what travel's all about, that's as well right. as recreation. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hokan Franden, Lali Sermon Aran, and Anastasia Gaitanu from Sweden, Turkey, and Greece. Hakan, your perspective from Sweden, for me, is, is really fascinating. And it's fascinating in part because you have a lot of people that left your country in desperation. A hundred years ago, 120 years ago, Sweden's population was five million. One million left for the U.S. and Canada because they saw better opportunities there. And they were well received. And you see the Swedish flag everywhere around here now. It's exactly the same thing. Now people come to us. 
And then there are people in our country who say, no, don't want. That's, that's absurd. It really is uh, important to have that historical perspective. It is. Now, when you think about Sweden, you've also got this, and Scandinavian in general, this determination to be open to the world. And I think it's kind of um, very thought-provoking because you do have relatively homogenous societies and small populations where it's hard to absorb a lot of people at the risk of creating an economic subculture that's going to cause challenges in the future. So you need to work as a society to incorporate your immigrant laborers in a way that gives them dignity and, and reason to embrace the society. Mm-hmm. After World War II, Sweden was not in World War II, we were neutral. Sweden had a big need for labor. There were a lot of people coming from Turkey and Greece. I have a lot of friends that are Turkish and Greek, a lot of them. They are a totally important and natural part of Sweden today. When Turkey won bronze medal in in football, European Cup, there were 10,000 Turks with the Turkish flag driving around Sergil Story in Stockholm. Sweden, (laughs) Turkey, Greece, it's people. And I don't want Turkish people coming to Sweden to become Swedes. I don't want Greek people coming to Sweden to become Swedes. I want them to be people living in Sweden. Now, that comes from a man, I think you told me once that Sweden was a very white and homogenous society. In fact, there was a famous black man who was working in a gas station, and people would travel from all around Sweden to see him. Was that you that told me about that? I t- yeah. yeah, that's true. Tell me about that. Well, that's a long time ago. Somebody told me in Stockholm, there was a black guy who worked in a Texaco gas station on Normella Strand near the city hall in Stockholm, and people came from all around Grand Stockholm to see him. Just because, because this was, was such black. a novel thing that yes. Sweden, you could grow up in Sweden and think everybody yeah. was blonde and white. That's right. But it's that, a different society today. Yeah, it is. This was like in the 40s, 50s, maybe 50s. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the European refugee crisis from a Swedish, Turkish, and Greek perspective. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. And Michael from Belton, Texas has sent us an email. And Michael writes, I lived in the south part of Sweden for a short time in the 80s and was wondering how the Swedes are handling the influx of refugees. From watching the news, many of the refugees want to take advantage of the social service and the quality of life the Swedes enjoy. At the same time, there was an article in National Geographic several years ago that brought up that many Swedes are conflicted about non-Swedes coming into their country. Hakon, I think you have a very progressive approach to the immigrant situation. Is there a large segment of Swedish people that would be more threatened by immigrants changing their culture, taking their jobs? No, so you're, I would say you're, no, but right-wing extremism is growing in Sweden as in the rest of Europe now, and that is, to a great extent, the result of what we're talking about here, that we have a lot of refugees coming, and that becomes nutrition for right-wing extremists mm-hmm. to blame immigrants for everything. These, remember, these are people that think that Greeks and Turks are, are, are less valued people, worthless. It's everywhere the same. So there is a right-wing party that has 13% of the votes in Sweden. Mm-hmm. 13%. That's what we're talking. And they would be likely to have that perspective. Very much so. Yeah. And, and then with social media, those few sound like they are everybody because they are everywhere. They occupy social media. They are very clever with doing that. And traditional media jumps on the train and spreads an image of how Mm -hmm. it is. But there are so many people going to help. I have a lot of friends who go to Greece, to to Lesbos, to help receiving refugees there. That's the normal people. I'd just like to add that nothing would have been possible without the hard work of volunteers. And being a country in recession has made us in the past five, six years to stop thinking about just ourselves and go back to traditional values and appreciate being able to help others. And on top of that came this, let's call it the refugee crisis. So there are lots of volunteers, not just Greeks, but from all over, really, Mm -hmm. on the island of Lesbos, 
helping, sometimes endangering their own lives, and helping trying to save these people who are trying to get away from bombs. It's not like they didn't like their apartment and they want to flee to another country. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're being killed. That's right. They're being slaughtered. And you distinguish very clearly between people leaving a poor country to get a better economic situation and Syrians who are actual refugees because the alternative is being bombed. So what would you have done in their shoes? Of course you leave. And it takes a lot of desperation for a mother to put an infant or a child on a rubber boat and send it and set it out on the on the sea in the Aegean Sea and then try to cross over. Yes. I mean, it's it's not an easy thing to do. It costs a lot of money. These are not poor people coming. I and mean, not everybody can afford that. There are people really dying out of hunger and of, of famine in, in Syria because these are the ones that cannot pay. And those smugglers getting them over to Greece, they pay between 1000 and $5,000 per head. This is not an easy thing. And these volunteers, they really help as much as nobody else most probably could. And I wanted also to mention that there is a, a huge effort now on the Internet to have them nominated for the Nobel Prize of Peace. And, and I hope they get it. I don't know if they will. But have, I, have I really the, the volunteers? Yes, the volunteers. Now, that's a beautiful idea. So there's a, a buzz that maybe the yes. volunteers on the islands helping the refugees. And there is, uh, you can go into Avaz, it's an A-V-A-A-Z, and you can sign that petition if yeah. you want to help. I, I have a sense that a lot of our American travelers who are listening are are really concerned about safety. Americans are just really afraid for their safety when they travel. And I think a lot of Americans are worried about terrorists sneaking through as refugees. And a lot of Americans might even close the doors to our country because out of 10,000 refugees, there could be one terrorist in there. What is the thinking in, in uh, Turkey about that, Lolly? With or without the refugees, there are bad people always, and there will be. So you cannot blame this on the refugees at all. That's the thinking in Turkey, in, in Greece, Anastasia. What would people, because you have these 80,000 people coming onto your, no, 800,000 people coming onto your shores. Yeah. Well, same thing. We try to registrate them, we try to control, mm-hmm. but it's really huge, the whole thing. It has made it to, to epic proportions at some times. We do get help from Europe, from Frontex, that is mm-hmm. the um, European border agency, but we don't have enough manpower to do that. Mm-hmm. And we even got uh, an admission from a spokesman of Frontex that they do not have all the equipment necessary to check all the passports. So it's, it's thousands of people coming every day, very few people working, lots of volunteers. It's a very difficult job. And... Of course, it has also, unfortunately, triggered other kinds of industries, like, for example, fake passports. Yeah, so that would be a natural They're thing. They're sold on the Internet. Right. Well, Hakan, what is the Swedish take or, or the Western European take if, uh, if you have a big heart for the refugees, but you're concerned that there might be a terrorist amid them? Our opinion is you can never really protect yourself against that possibility. Some years ago... There was a terrorist, a right-wing extremist terrorist in Norway who murdered 100 kids that were on a political camp. After that happened, the Norwegian prime minister in a speech said, they hate the open society, they hate democracy. The the terrorists hate the open society. The terrorists hate the open society. Mm -hmm. Our answer is going to be, more democracy and more openness. And remember that Norway is the most democratic country in the world on the uh, Economist Democracy Index. Okay. More democracy, more openness. You can never... What could we do to prevent the possibility of there being one a terrorist somewhere? We could do nothing. One thing we could do, we could be more open, we could be more democratic, we could embrace the world more. That's the only thing we can do. There's no, you, can't, you cannot not travel because there might be a terrorist among refugees. You cannot say no to receiving people running away from war because one of them might be a bad guy. You can't. There are bad guys everywhere. Isn't just everything about trying to give everybody a better opportunity to live and also support diversities and intolerance. 
On that note, I think we can close this discussion, and I want to thank each of you, Lali Sermonaran from Turkey, Hokon Franden from Sweden, and Anastasia Gaitanu from Greece. Efedestol, Teşekküredem, and Taksimeka. Tak. Thank you. Moro. Sometimes it only requires a few well-chosen words to convey a lasting impression from your travels. Here are a few travel haiku our listeners have written that I thought you'd enjoy. Christy Dish from Washington, D.C. sends us this impression from a day around the Place des Vosges on the right bank in Paris. Delightful moray, an afternoon spent among lovers and lindens. James P. H. Kotzebar of Lompoc, California writes this to remember what it felt like strolling the banks of the Arno River in Florence. I miss cobblestones, the river and its bridges, choosing meals by smell. And Anthony St. Clair from Eugene, Oregon shares this moment from his family trip to Japan. Jet Lag Toddler says, let's help Tokyo wake up. Sunrise walk with dad. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks this week to WBEZ Chicago and to Gretchen Strzok for reading the travel haiku. You can send us an original haiku about your own travels or find out when Rick's recording his next batch of radio interviews so that you can talk on the air with Rick and his guests. Find out how it all works in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, giving you feedback on your pronunciation as you learn a new language to help your language be clear and authentic-sounding to the native ear. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.